Thank you for taking the time to listen to this sermon from Seekers Christian Fellowship. We believe that God's Word completes the believer, making them fully equipped men and women of God, ready for every good work. It is our prayer that through this message, you're challenged by the Word of God, built up in love for God and one another, conforming to the image of Jesus Christ. Good morning, church. I just just want to welcome everyone this morning. I know I see some new faces. If you are here for the first time, I want you to know that you are warmly welcomed in this place. And as I was preparing uh, this uh, the sermon for this Sunday, uh, you know the, the the chorus that came to my mind was a very old chorus. Some of you young folks, you may not know it. Maybe one day we should sing it. When I think of the goodness of Jesus, how many of you know that chorus? There we go. You know that. Yes. It's a beautiful chorus. And I was thinking, when I think of the goodness of Jesus, when I think of what he has done for me, my soul crieth out. Hallelujah. Praise God for saving me. Wonderful, isn't it? Wonderful. So I'm really thankful to God for that. God for that, that he saved me. Not only he saved me, that he gave me, you, each one of you, as a church family, as part of my family. And I really thank the Lord for that. And I pray that as a family, that we can bring glory to Him in everything that we say and do. Now, for today's message, I've given the title, The Theology of Christ's Burial. The Theology of Christ's Burial. For those who are here for the first time, or if you're joining us, we are on a journey through the gospel according to John... And uh, we started off last year at the very beginning of 2022, and we are in the 19th chapter. So when I give the name the theology of Christ's burial, it simply means the study of God's nature in the burial of Jesus Christ. Let me repeat that so that you understand. It's a study of God's nature in the burial of Jesus Christ. This is really an exciting passage, and I learned a lot as I was doing my own study on this. And I must admit that this is most suited for the curious mind, those who really want to understand God more. Uh, but it's, a, it's a full of wealth of truth about God, but there is a lesson for every one of us. So the question I want to pause is that in light of understanding the theology of Christ's burial, what is going to be our response? Church, if you don't get it, it's only a head knowledge. And you are not in a seminary trying to analyze the passage of Scripture. You are in the church. So this, should, this warrants a response from every one of you. How is this message going to change my life? So... Tighten your seatbelts because I'm going to go pretty fast today because so many verses to cover. Church, we are in the middle of two important and significant times of human history. The crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are looking at a time in between these two incidents and you have probably heard many sermons preached on the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. You have heard many sermons preached on the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
because they both have very great implication on us. But how many sermons have you heard about what happened right in between the death and the resurrection? The burial of Jesus is no less important than his death and his resurrection. So this morning, I want us to focus on his burial, on his burial. So we'll be examining the theology of Jesus' burial and its significance to us today. As you heard the passage being read, there are two names that popped up. Anyone remember that? Joseph and Nicodemus. Joseph and Nicodemus. They are men of high stature in the society. Did you notice one thing, church here? All disciples except one who spent three long years with the Lord Jesus Christ, who even said that we are prepared to die with you, they all fled the moment Christ was arrested and crucified. It seems that only Apostle John cared to come back to the scene at the cross. On the other hand, here we see two so-called disciples, Joseph and Nicodemus, who had hesitated to confess Christ publicly when he was alive, now risk the wrath of Pilate and the rejection from their fellow members of the council. And these two take this bold, open stand for Christ after he has died. Of course, the fruit of their bold actions here testifies to their underlying faith. But they could have easily reasoned if Jesus was a true Messiah, he would not have died. Why didn't they just walk away like any other disciple? I believe the answer lies in the narrative today the way that Apostle John put side by side the final scene at the cross in today's passage with the actions of these two individuals, Nicodemus and Joseph, in his burial. So witnessing the death of the Lord Jesus Christ had deeply affected both of them. Seeing Christ crucified actually solidified their commitment to him. Church, we should be thankful to these two men because they played a key role in the burial of the Lord Jesus Christ. God used these two men's costly commitment in the burial of the Lord Jesus Christ to teach us valuable lessons. So as we study this, I pray that we too will be like these two men. Joseph and Nicodemus take a bold stand for Christ amongst his opponents today. So as I examine this text, there are three theological observations we can make. And they are these. Number one, I see there's a prophecy. There's a prophecy, it's a prophetic utterance. And number two that we see is the proclamation. The proclamation of the gospel message. And number three that we see is the public display of God's glory. Public display of God's glory. 
So let me break it down now. Let's look at the prophetic utterance. What do we see in the scriptures about this burial? Now, I'm only highlighting a few, and I'm just going off this text, but looking at different scriptures. The firstly, prophet Isaiah speaks of this 700 years before this incident took place. We see this in Isaiah 53, verse number 9. Follow along as I read. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Talking about what? Jesus' burial. The second prophetic utterance, look at the birth narrative. Now, one of the carols that I really love to sing because it really gives you a nice, uh, is We Three Kings of Orienta. You remember the song? Yes. We know that. And I would like to draw your attention to the fourth stanza of We Three Kings, and which is this. Myrrh is mine, its bitter perfume breathes a life of gathering gloom. Sorrowing, sighing, bleeding, dying, sealed in a stone-cold tomb. And you see this in the Matthew's narrative in chapter 2 of the Gospel. We may wonder why myrrh is linked here with gloom and a stone-cold tomb. Myrrh was one of the embalming spices that were used to prepare the body of Jesus for burial after he had died on the cross. So what do we see here, church? The burial of Jesus was already in view right from his birth right from his birth. And it was important enough to be represented by one of the gifts of the wise men. Third, prophetic utterance of Jesus' burial is seen again in the narrative of Mary of Bethany anointing Jesus with the most expensive fragrant oil. Know the story? I'm not going to go through that now. It happened just a few days before Christ's arrest. And Christ witnessing that, and people were rebuking him, sorry, rebuking her, why are you spending so much money and wasting this amount of money on this? And here's what Jesus said. He said, she did it for my burial. She did it for my burial. What do you see here, church? Jesus prophesying about his burial. So, church, the first theological observation is the prophecy, is the prophetic utterance of the burial. We see from prophet Isaiah, from the wise men, from Mary of Bethany, even though those three are not mentioned in the text that we are looking at today. I'm just quoting a few here as we study the theology of Christ's burial. So that leads us to the second theological observation, how this becomes a part of the gospel. Look at what Jesus said just after this, this, this woman uh, washing her with the fragrant oil. This is what Jesus said after commending about her act and saying she did it for my burial. Listen to this place. This is a key to the theology of his burial. And after that, Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, 
what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. Do you get it? So this will be reported wherever, what? The gospel is preached. So Jesus' burial deserves a place in the gospel according to our Lord Jesus Christ. And church, this is what we see in the way that how Apostle Paul summarized the gospel message. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3 and 4. And Paul said, this is the gospel message. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that, read with me, he was buried. He was buried. So the question is, how does Christ's burial deserve a place in the gospel? Why is it? Because gospel is the good news, isn't it? Why is this a good news to me? There are two reasons why this burial is good news to me. Number one is because it gives us comfort. Number two is because it gives us confidence. Let me walk you through it very quickly. First, the comfort. By being buried, his identification with us becomes full and complete. Church, our life begins in the cradle and ends in the grave. Is there anything different to that? For all of us. By going all the way from the cradle to the grave, Jesus has become like us in every way. So how does that help us? You know, imagine this church. The concept of burial triggers a creepy, frightening fear in all of us. None exempted. I don't know about you. I'm claustrophobic. I, I, if I'm alone in the elevator for too long, I'm wondering how can I get out of here. So the concept of burial is something you can't even fathom. That's the reality. It looks like I'm the only one, but I can look at your faces. But because Christ has gone through that, now when our turn to die and be buried comes, we have a wonderful assurance that our Savior has gone down that path before us. Therefore, we have nothing more to fear about death and burial. Church, comforting, how comforting it is to know that we have a Savior who has been buried. So that's the first reason why Christ's burial is part of the gospel. And the second reason is to give us confidence, I said. The burial of Christ Jesus set the stage in the most perfect manner for his resurrection from the dead. For his resurrection from the dead. So as we examine the scriptures this morning, and we're going to see that today, that's why I'm giving this as preamble, we will see that everything that happened after Christ, di Christ died was providentially arranged by God to prepare for that glorious moment when Jesus would rise up from the dead. So, and it all happened in such manner so that it gives us no doubt at all that he had truly risen from the dead. I hope you got it. So the reason why this deserves a place in the gospel, because it gives us comfort and confidence. 
So that is our second theological observation. Now let's move on to the third one, the last one. Now you might think last one, thank God the sermon is going to be over. It's only starting now. All right. So the third observation is found in our text today. And if you have your Bibles, I'm going to encourage you to turn to John chapter 19. And we'll be looking at verses 31 to 30, 42, which has already been read to you. So from this passage, now we are looking at the third aspect of it. From this passage, we'll, be un we'll understand the theological truth of how Jesus was glorified in at least three ways, the burial of Jesus Christ. So first of all, look at this please. God was glorified in the providential timing of Christ's burial. Providential timing. Can we all say that word together please? Providential timing. Look at this. Boy, this is so powerful. This is so powerful. Let me read this to you. Therefore, John writes this, Apostle John, because it was the preparation day. What is that? And then he says that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath. And he says, for that Sabbath was a high day. What is that? The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. See the sovereign plan of God in this historical event. I want you to note the timing, church. It was the preparation day, and further it says, Sabbath was a high day. What does that really mean to us today? The day that Jesus died on the cross was the feast of Passover. Listen, church, I want you to come along with me. There could not have been a better day for Jesus to die on the cross. Why is it? It's because in that particular year, the Passover just happened to fall on a Friday, the day before the Sabbath. Come along with me. This means the Sabbath was also the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, making it a very special Sabbath. That's why in verse 31 it is called a high day. A high day. And also special regulations were enforced to ensure that it was kept undefiled. So according to Jewish law, no work was allowed on that day. That is why Friday was called the Jews' preparation day in verse 31. And you see that again in verse 42, and we are not going to look at that today. It was a time when they must complete all their work in preparation for observing the Sabbath. All work, including cooking and washing, must be finished on Friday before the Sabbath started. Now, what if someone dies on the Sabbath? People can die, isn't it, on a Sabbath? What if that happens? Nothing could be done. Nothing could be done. All work of embalming and burying will have to wait until the next day. And no crucified victims were to remain hanging on their crosses on the Sabbath because that would defile that high Sabbath 
day. Just bear with me. The devil doesn't like when you try to talk about him or bring. <laughs> anyway, that's fine. I need to find a reason for this. Okay. So, as we look at this, so it's, it's, it's before the Sabbath, I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, a crucified victims were not allowed to remain hanging on the Sabbath day. So now come with me, church. Pay attention. To the Jews, the Sabbath begins at 6 p.m. on Friday evening. At 6 p.m. So on that particular Friday, they had to ensure that all three crucified victims were dead, taken down from the crosses, and buried before 6 p.m. Are you with me so far? Yes. But the victims of crucifixion have known to take more than a day to die. Come along with me. So you crucify somebody on the, on the cross, it will take more than 24 hours, roughly, for the person to be really dead. So what do they do to expedite it? The solution is to break their legs, to speed up their death, so they can remove them quickly. That's what happened to the two thieves who were crucified with Jesus. I want you to think about this crucifixion while you are still alive and hanging with all the nail-pierced hands, your legs are broken with the mallet. Look at verse 32. Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who was crucified with him. So they smashed their legs with the mallet, and they died shortly. So let us say that if the crucifixion had taken place on another day, I told you it's a providential timing is what you're looking at. There are no religious restrictions. Bodies would have been left on the cross to die. Their remains would then be cast together in a common grave. Common grave. If that had happened to Jesus, there would have been no convincing proof that he had truly risen from the dead. Then the Jews would say the disciples secretly at night stole the body of Jesus from that common grave in order to deceive the people that he had risen. Alternatively, listen church, the Jews could have taken any of the decaying bodies out of the common grave and said, look, here's the dead body of Jesus. Then no one would believe the testimony of the disciples that Jesus had resurrected from the dead. Therefore, it was providential that Jesus happened to die on that day, just before the high Sabbath day. But that's not all. Do you know that there could have there could not have been a better hour for Jesus to die. 
then around 3 p.m. On, on that Friday. Things could have turned out very differently if Jesus had died much later than that. Why? Let me explain to you. If the soldiers had found that Jesus was still alive when they broke the legs of the other two victims, they would have done what? Broken the legs of Jesus, him as well, isn't it? Make him to die faster. So you ask, what seems to be the problem, Pastor? They're going to kill him. What's the big deal? If that had happened, church, it's a big question. If that had happened, that would mean that his death no longer qualifies to be a Passover sacrifice. His death no longer qualifies to be a Passover sacrifice. Look at verse 36. For these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled, not one of his bones shall be broken. Church, you will understand the theology when you know the requirement given to the Israelites for a Passover lamb. That's when you can make the, make the connections. Look at Exodus chapter 12 verse 46. In one house it shall be eaten. You shall not carry any of the flesh outside the house. No, read with me. Shall, I'm sorry. Read with me, please. No, oh, I'm putting the wrong one here. I don't know what's going on today. Did I miss this? Yes. Read, read the lower part, please. Can you read with me, please? In one house it shall be eaten. You shall not carry any of the flesh outside the house, nor shall you break one of its bones. So we are told that the Israelites had to take special care to keep every single bone of the Passover lamb intact. When they killed it, when they roasted it, even when they eat it. We may wonder why such a strange requirement as this was necessary at that time in history. The only one possible reason to make it very obvious that the Passover lamb points to Jesus Christ. Isn't that a goosebump moment? Think about it, church. So many thousands of years ago, it was decided the Passover lamb the bones will not be broken. That's the only way to distinguish the death of the Lord Jesus Christ from the others. So what is the lesson for us? The lesson we can learn from this is that nothing ever happens by chance to his children. Every event in our lives is carefully ordered by God and it's time to happen to accomplish his divine purpose. And God can use anything at all to accomplish his purpose in our lives. In the case of Jesus' burial, God used the restrictions imposed by the Jews' observance of special days. When Jesus was born, God used Roman taxation decree to ensure that he would be born nowhere else 
but in Bethlehem. In our case, church, let's bring it down to us. God may use a change in our comfort zone or a financial challenges or a challenge of family circumstances, a loss of a loved ones, a persisting illness, even a loss of a job or an unexpected delay or an accident to direct the events in our life today. I'm sure there were times when you have wondered why certain things have happened to me. Things that you had not planned to happen. Honestly, when we first came, migrated to Canada, and we landed in Scarborough, and I wondered why the Lord took me to the center of the universe in Dundas. I had no clue why he took me there. I'm serious. I was wondering, God, I see a lot of people... At least I can, I can see they may be from Sri Lanka in that part of the world. And why are you taking me to a place that I don't know? God had a different plan. Because that is the birthplace of my ministry. Have you been there? Maybe you are facing it right now. Church, especially it happens to the first generation of the diaspora community. When you land here with dreams and hopes, you think that you have come to a land flowing with milk and honey. The Lord first breaks you. He molds you. And then he makes you into the person he wants you to be. Sometimes the pathway is so confusing. But we are like the Israelites when things are not working our way. We say, why God, why? Where are you, God? And we are sometimes like the Israelites. We say, it would have been Better if the Lord had just killed us in the land of Egypt. At least there we had plenty to eat. We had all the food we needed. Remember, you didn't like that Egypt. That's why you left. You failed to realize that it was he who brought you out of your Egypt. So trust in the Lord. Don't be an ungrateful generation. Trust in him. His timing is perfect. The scripture says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. And what will he do? He will direct your path. Look at Abraham. Look at Moses. Look at Joseph. Look at Mary. They are all experienced this. How many more examples do you need? Love him with all your heart. Don't run away. Move closer to him. The theology, as you learn, must lead you to neology. You must be on your knees crying out to the Lord. I experienced that. And God revealed his plan to me. He will do the same for you. Take this as God's providence at work. And trust him to work out all things well for you. That's the promise that we see in Romans 8.28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love him. To whom, to whom God has promised this. Those who, those who are called according to his purpose. So all we need is to rely on his providential timing. And surrender our will. So church, the timely death of Jesus was providentially arranged by God to provide an important proof that he is none other than the Passover lamb of God which taketh away the sins of the world. 
So we examine the theology of Christ's burial. The first way that God is glorified is the providential timing. Everybody say the word providential timing. The day and the hour of his death. That brings me to consider the second way in which God is glorified. That is the final proof before Christ's burial. Look at verse 33 to 34. But when they came to Jesus and saw that, what? He was already dead. They did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers did what? Pierced his side with a spear and immediately what came out? Blood and water came out. Church, we see that a soldier pierced his side. Did you notice that no reason is given why the soldier did it? He was just poking around, maybe playing around. But there's a divine purpose for every act. Otherwise, the Lord would not permit even this so-called silly act of the, of the soldier. It was surely not done to kill him because we see that Jesus is already dead. I believe that even this playful act was providentially arranged by God to provide several important proofs for us concerning Christ. Please come along with me. There is a, there is a very deep theological understanding you can take from this. Firstly, this proved that Jesus is God's Passover lamb. How can I say that, you ask? One of the important requirements of the Passover lamb is that its blood must be extracted to provide the means for Israel's salvation. Do you recall the story of Exodus? As they were about to leave, they were asked to do what? Sprinkle the blood on their doorpost and the lintels. And then what happened? Then when the angel of death came, or when it comes, it would pass over the house so that no one would die. Hence the spearing of Jesus was essentially to complete his role as the Passover lamb. Since it released his precious blood to flow profusely out of his body to save us from dying for our sins. Now, Apostle John connects this act with something very important to us. Look at verse 35. John writes, He who has seen this, who is this? Apostle John has testified, and his testimony is true, and, and he knows that he's telling the truth. Why is he telling the truth? So that you may believe. So verse 35 tells us that this particular proof which the soldier's spearing provided should draw a good response from us so that you may believe. Therefore, if anyone here who is not saved, please do not let this day go by. Come to the Lord. Come to the Lord. Receive the cleansing. Look at this verse we are going to is is from taken from the hymn that you are singing today. There is a fountain filled with blood, drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Church, it doesn't matter how deep your sin is. It doesn't matter 
how severe you have fallen back. If you can truly come to him. Because of the blood that was shed on the cross. You will be cleansed. You will be cleansed. Come and be cleansed. Remove the guilty saints. Wash it with the blood. Let this blood be applied to you right now. So that you will be passed over on the day of awful judgment. Don't let this day go by. You are not sure if you can get up tomorrow morning from your sleep. Don't let this day go by. May God's name be glorified through the salvation of sinners. Though the second thing that we are looking at from the spearing is the proof concerning his death and his divinity. Again, verse number 37, look at this. And again, another scripture says, John writes this, they shall look on him, read with me, whom they pierced. This is so powerful, church. Pay attention. According to verse 37, this act was the fulfillment of the scripture. So where do you see this, pastor? The spearing of Jesus proved that he is none other than God himself. It talks about the divinity of Christ. We see this in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, Jesus' divinity. Look at this. And I will pour on the house of David. Who is talking now? God. The word I referring to God. If you don't follow this, you won't, you won't get the point. And on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication. Then you will look on me. Who is this? God himself. Whom they what? Who is speaking here? God is the one who is speaking here. And this was fulfilled at the moment Jesus was pierced with the soldier's spear. Here then is the indisputable proof of the deity of Christ. Thirdly, this piercing disputes the swoon theory. I don't know how many of you know the swoon theory is the belief that Jesus did not really die at the crucifixion. He was kind of an unconscious state and later he was revived or he was resurrect, uh, resurrect, resuscitated inside the tomb. The proof is found in the description of what flowed out of the wound. If you look at it, we read earlier, it was not just blood alone. What came with blood? Blood and water. If you are still alive, only blood would have flowed out. Trust me, we witnessed this last Sunday morning when Evelyn, Sister Evelyn, hit her head on that, on that, whatever that is. It was bleeding profusely, uncontrollable. So because the person is alive, you get only the blood coming out. The blood and water comes only when a person is dead. When that portion of his body is pierced. This can, only, this can be confirmed easily by anyone who has medical knowledge. So as we examine these proofs about Jesus, 
what moved him to die in our place, church? Wasn't it his great, amazing love for sinners just like you and me? And that's what you see in this beautiful stanza of the When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that I were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine. Read with me. Demands my soul, my life, my all. Will you give it all today? Will you give it all today? Church, we have seen how God's glory was display, displayed through, first of all, the providential timing, the day and the time, and secondly, through the proof of his death. And we are going to look at the last point. Trust me, this is the last point. And what should be our response now? That's what they're going to look at right now. What should be our response? So as we read through this, I'm not going to read it. We already read it. How should we respond to such love? We ought to respond not only by believing in him, but also by loving him. We ought to respond just like the two disciples, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, who became the loving providers of Christ's burial. This is what we saw or see in this passage just read to you. Who are these two disciples? Nicodemus, first time that we see in his encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ on one night in John chapter 3, he come to the Lord with a sincere desire to know about him because he was personally convinced that Jesus was sent by God and the Lord himself said, go, you must be born again. You remember that? And was Nicodemus eventually born again? In John chapter 7, we see that he spoke of for Jesus to his fellow Pharisees where they showed prejudice against him. We studied that in John chapter 7. And today we are seeing he's bringing 100 pounds of myrrh, and myrrh to embalm his body. For all this, we know that Nicodemus must have experienced the new birth after his first visit to visited Jesus and became a secret disciple. How about Joseph of Arimathea? He was a rich man, a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin council. But he had been afraid of all this time to openly confess his faith in Jesus Christ until this moment. He no longer wanted to remain a secret disciple of Christ. Joseph was moved very deeply when he saw how Jesus died. This gave him all the boldness. He needed to openly confess his faith in Christ. How did he do that? He went to Pilate. He asked him permission to take Jesus' body for proper burial. Let us learn from the way these two disciples showed their love for the Lord. Firstly, if you truly love the Lord Jesus, you must not be afraid to let others know that you belong to him. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of what people will say or think about you. Tell the whole world boldly that you are a Christian and share the gospel openly with the people around you. They got that boldness out of conviction. Joseph and Nicodemus. That's exactly what Peter says. But sanctify the Lord in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Secondly, church, if you truly love the Lord, like Nicodemus and Joseph, you must be willing to place everything you have at his disposal. Everything. 
Joseph of Arimathea placed the good standing he enjoyed with the Roman governor. He risked it at Christ's disposal because he had to go and obtain permission to take the body. He was willing to use his own tomb for the burial of Jesus. Him being in the high stature in the society, it was a very expensive tomb. It was specially constructed for himself at a huge expense. The important thing is that it was the tomb that was never used. And Matthew Henry, in his commentary, he says this. He that was born from a virgin womb must rise from a virgin tomb. I love the way he, he looked at this. Let me repeat that. It's not mine, it's Matthew Henry's. He that was born from a virgin womb must rise from a virgin tomb. Look at Nicodemus. He was just as willing as Joseph to serve the Lord in his burial. The amount of spices that Nicodemus brought is about 100 pounds. They're very costly because they're imported stuff. Only a man of great means would be able to afford that. So my question to you as I bring this message to a close, are you willing as these two disciples to let Jesus use all that you have, whether it is your possession, your home, or your wealth, are you, or are you hoarding everything to yourself? Your time, your talents, your treasure. Forgetting that he is the one who loaned these things to you. How long will it take for the Lord to remove it from you to draw your attention? Church, way back when, when I was young and restless, even though I grew up in a Christian home, most of you know this story, but I'll repeat it today. I was a good Christian, I thought, but I was more interested in the world. But the Lord has to cause a near-fatal accident to draw me closer to Him. How many of you would want to have that near-fatal accident for the Lord to draw you closer to Him? Make a commitment to the Lord right now. Put all these things aside. Who can tell all the glory he will bring to himself by using them? Just look at what, how well the Lord used everything that these two men provided for his glory. The empty tomb became the most significant evidence that Jesus had truly risen from the dead. And since the grave clothes of Jesus with the spices in them were found in the tomb, lying still intact like an empty shell, everyone who saw it would have no doubts that the body of Jesus had miraculously come out of this and the empty tomb. All these now today stand as irrefutable evidence of the reality and power of the greatest miracle of all time. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. I'm sure Joseph and Nicodemus would never ever have thought that their act of kindness, service, would be held in such high esteem in the Christian world today. What a glory it has brought to God by causing millions of people to put their trust in the recent Savior. Church, please, as I close, 
Stop. Stop. Stop coming up with excuses when you are called to serve the Lord. You serve not to please the pastors. You serve not to please anyone. You serve to make an impact in his kingdom. What you have is given by God to you. If you are a true child of God, will you now surrender everything that you have to him? Will you let God use you, all that you have for his glory? And you don't know how God can take that and use it for his glory. I am powerfully reminded at this time of the shoe salesman whom D.L. Moody came across. If you read the story of D.L. Moody, who's a well-known theologian, his conversion came about actually through a shoe salesman whose name we don't know even. God used that shoe salesman to touch the life of D.L. Moody through whom the entire world is touched with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not asking all of us to be D.L. Moody's. I'm asking every one of us if we can faithfully sow the seed like that shoe salesman, like Nicodemus, like Joseph of Arimathea. God will take it and use it for your glory that you can never think or imagine.